that's what appealed to me about The Walking was that I'm in it every day, whether it's a place I want to be in or not, and whether it's really hot or really cold or windy or if it's dangerous or if it's somewhere I don't speak the language, I have to walk through that place. And I kind of wanted that. I wanted to be forced into adventure. In 2015, Tom Tursich walked out the door of his home in Haddon Township, New Jersey. He was wearing a backpack and pushing a stroller, but there wasn't a baby inside. Instead, the stroller was loaded with gear, a tent, a sleeping bag and pad, a water filter, and a camping cook set. It was the day before his 26th birthday, and Tom was setting out to walk all the way around the world. Now, seven years later, Tom's returned home as the 10th person to cross the globe on foot. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living, an REI Co-op Studios production. Tom's journey spans six continents. From New Jersey, it took him nearly two years to walk to Uruguay, where he then took a boat to Antarctica. Then he crisscrossed his way around the UK, Europe, and North Africa. Five years into his journey, Tom was walking through Azerbaijan when COVID hit. He decided to reroute. After walking then through Kyrgyzstan, he flew to Seattle in August of 2021. It took another nine months to make it home to Haddon Township. His total distance was over 25,000 miles. Tom Tursich, welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. Thanks for having me. You have one of the most wild ideas, the idea to walk around the world. Can you just start with your why? Why back in 2015 did you decide to walk? My friend Emery died when I was 17 and she was 16. And we were uh, good friends throughout our life. We grew up just a couple blocks from each other and uh, went to the same elementary school, then high school, You know, hung out in the same group. And she died in this uh, jet ski accident, a very freak, sudden thing. And the thing about Anne-Marie in particular, uh, and I guess like everyone says this after someone they know dies, like they were the nicest person I knew. But for me, it's really true. Anne-Marie was the nicest person I knew. And it kind of, it always drove me crazy how nice she was. Like I, like I was like, would prod her almost to get her to be like anything but generous. So when she passed, uh, it was really uh, an awakening for me that if Anne-Marie can go just suddenly, then so could I. And I didn't really know how to integrate this, this fact that I can go at any moment. And so then when I thought about what I wanted out of life, I knew I wanted to travel, I wanted adventure, and I wanted to understand the world. And then I discovered Steve Newman and Carl Bushby, these two guys who had walked around the world. Carl Bushby still walking around the world. And that seemed to answer kind of everything I wanted out of life. And then it was eight years of saving and going to school and paying off loans and living at home and saving and paying off loans and working uh, until I had enough money where I thought I could make it down two years to Argentina and hopefully get a sponsor. I'm really curious, you know, getting to the starting line is hard, especially if it's something as daunting as walking around the world. So you 
you had this reason to go this why, but you could have done a lot of things after your friend passed to honor Anne Marie. What about walking around the world? Like, did you just get a book? Like, did it hit you one night? Like, how did that happen? I think it just seemed like the most immersive way to see the world. I think that's what appealed to me because I really wanted to like be in these places. And I think that's always kind of appealed to me. I've always just been sort of kind of repelled from the touristy spots and more attracted to uh, the simple and kind of real places and things. And so I think that that's what appealed to me about the walking was that it was like very simple and uh, it would let me kind of see the world and I would be forced into adventure. That's the other thing about the walking is that I'm in it every day, whether it's a place I want to be in or not, and whether it's really hot or really cold or windy, or if it's dangerous, or if it's somewhere I don't speak the language, I have to walk through that place. And I kind of wanted that. I wanted to be forced into adventure. Did you like train? Did you start walking? Like to to keep you motivated during (laughs) like you're 18, 19, 20 years old? Like that's a, that's a tricky age to like have that foresight. No, I was I was in college and I was in a fraternity and I was drinking and <laughs> just having a great time. Where did you go to school? Moravian College uh, in Pennsylvania. Did you play tennis for them? I did, yeah. So you were a college athlete and a fraternity a boy. Athlete. Yeah, fraternity president. <laughs> yeah. Of course you were. You're a driven guy. <laughs> but the world walk was always in, in the back of my mind. Uh, but I, I barely did any hikes or anything even before starting. I did a 10-day hike on the AT with my college tennis partner. And then I did a couple like three-day hikes. But it's the kind of thing where I figured you know, once I just start walking and I started in the US purposefully so that I could you know, get my legs under me and, and get out all the kinks and figure out how much water I need, how much food do I need, you know, how does my body stand up to things. I mean, I've been an athlete my whole life. I played soccer and swam and tennis. Uh, So I knew I could kind of adjust. But as far as, you know, staying motivated, I think it was just, you know, it's it's nice to have some sort of flag in the distance that you can kind of direct your life towards. And once I had set that flag at 17, everything in my life was kind of directed towards that. Tom knew that if he was going to make the world walk, there would be a lot of planning involved. He didn't have to pay much for transportation. Walking is free, but he still had to pay for seven years of food, water, visas, and occasional hotel rooms. Tom worked summers installing solar panels, which allowed him to pay off his student loans while also saving money for the trip. Then a couple of months before his walk, he landed a sponsorship opportunity with a local business. Once the finances were in place, Tom was ready to go. So everybody listening to this is like, okay, how did he do it? Like logistically, where did you sleep? Where did you eat? What was kind of the day-to-day? The day-to-day is very simple. You wake up and walk and try and find a place for breakfast, walk some more, try and find a place for lunch, walk some more, maybe find a place for dinner or a pasta outside the tent, find a place to sleep go to bed and do it again. Uh, and uh, I mean, it sounds it sounds very simple. It is very simple. That's what you do. You just get up and walk and uh, the scenery changes around me. You know, sometimes I'm in the jungle of Costa Rica. Other times I was in the deserts of Peru and in Chile. And then I was in Denmark, 
in snow and in Germany in snow and then you know in the mountains of Kyrgyzstan. So the scenery changes and the situation changes. Sometimes I have to bring more food with me. Whereas maybe if I'm in Western Europe, I barely have to carry any food because I'm just going through pretty populated areas. Uh, there's other times I'm saying I'm on the Camino and you know, I have this community around me, which is really great. And then in the opposite of that, I'm walking across Wyoming in winter and I'm just on my own with the wind blasting me in the face. And so it, the scenery changes and kind of the amount of food I carry with me changes and the amount of water I carry with me changes, but it's simple. I walk and then I find a place to camp and then I do it again the next day. And every now and then a hotel? Every now and then. The first like year and a half, I got maybe like maybe a month total worth of hotels and the rest was all camping. But at a certain point in Peru, the hotels were really cheap. And I stopped one weekend and I realized, you know, I should probably stop more often and see some of these places. I decided, you know, I'm going to stop every weekend and just spend a day in some place and, you know, slow down a little bit. So you carried a backpack, a stroller. I'm going to talk about your dog, but just really quickly about how many miles a day would you walk? I would average probably when I was walking kind of at a minimum 21 miles a day. More realistically, I was probably doing 24 miles in a day. I think over, if you averaged out all the days with all the off days and everything else, it's probably close to like 12 miles a day or 11 miles a day for like how far in total I've walked and and the uh, total days. But yeah, when I was going, I liked to, you know, get in at least 21 miles to feel like a full day. How would you map your trail and like decide where to camp as well? Uh, That's something... Like on a large scale, there was two considerations um, in drawing out the route. Uh, the first was that I knew I wanted to hit every continent. So I drew the route. Okay, this is how I hit every continent. And then the second thing was how do I do that with as minimal visa trouble as possible? And so that's the reason where I didn't get into sub-Saharan Africa or the Middle East or Southeast Asia is because it was just easier to skim North Africa and then walk up to Mongolia was the plan. I wasn't able to do it because of COVID. But ultimately, I only needed about two visas. With the day-to-day stuff, it really depends on the country and the feel of the country. Some countries have a lot of roads. Some countries have these great quiet roads that I can just follow through the mountains the whole way. Other times, it's just one road along the coast and you're just, this is the road you're taking and you don't have any choice about it. It's the only way to go. And then figuring out where I'm going to sleep. Generally, I would look ahead just with Google Maps and have the maps downloaded. And I look ahead and say, I think this is a good spot. And I could do that pretty reliably in some places in, in developed countries where Google Maps has like street viewed everything. It's super easy. And that's really important when I'm in a developed area. You like get you have to get really precise on where you're going to camp when you have all this population around you. And then uh, in other places, it's just kind of winging it. I remember, like in Morocco in particular, there's kind of these ravines along the coast, and I would walk until uh, I found one of these little ravines that I could duck away into. And it was difficult to camp there though because people were outside even in the night because it was pretty warm, and so. 
I was never really felt like I was totally hidden because there would be kids out playing and there'd be people out walking uh, until 10, 11 at night. And so I'd just be laid out on my tarp somewhere trying to, you know, hoping I'd tucked myself away enough to get a good eight hours of sleep. Walking is tiring, and rest was a necessity if Tom was going to make it around the world. Unfortunately, his nights weren't all that restful. Mysterious noises kept him awake, and he was worried about his safety and the security of his belongings. To ease his mind, Tom decided to enlist a canine companion. It's one of the reasons humans and dogs teamed up in the first place, right? Humans wanted protection, and dogs wanted food and friendship. When Tom got to Texas, he decided to make a pit stop at an animal shelter. When I got to Austin, I went into this adoption center. Uh, I spent about two hours there, and they were all kind of adult dogs, and I didn't think that was right. And then just as I was about to leave, they brought out Savannah and her sister and their puppies. And I knew pretty quickly that this is perfect because she'll grow up on the road and she won't know any other existence. I'm just really curious because Savannah is the first dog to ever walk across the world, which is so awesome for Savannah and for you. What was it like, though, bringing her to different countries and especially across some of those borders? When you read online about crossing borders with dogs, it makes it seem like it's some impossible grand feat. And in reality, most countries just want a recent rabies vax within a year and then a general health certificate within 10 days of getting to the border. But probably about 50% of the countries don't even acknowledge Savannah because there's strays crossing the border all day. And so they don't care. Central and South America, it was maybe 40% of the countries asked for her paperwork. And also, once you're in Europe, if you get the um, International Health Certificate in the US, which is pretty straightforward, uh, you just need uh, a certified vet to apply for it. Then you're in and you're in Europe and it's pretty, pretty easy. I mean, I've always, I always had the paperwork just in case. I think the more difficult thing was it was a little limiting with hotels. In the Americas, you could always kind of persuade the person because they were mostly mom and pop hotels and they wanted my business. Uh, in Europe, you could look up you know, what are pet-friendly hotels. The only country that was difficult was, well, North Africa was difficult because dogs just aren't really part of the culture. Luckily, in Algeria, I had this police escort for the whole way. And they made me stay at hotels every night because they didn't want me out camping. And none of the hotels wanted Savannah, but the police would basically like twist the arm of the owner and be like, you're taking this dog. Oh, <laughs> so that's awesome. I would get in. And the turkey was a little difficult as well with Savannah, just finding places to stay. Turkey was actually probably the most difficult because they have this very established culture that just dogs aren't inside. The dogs are really well taken care of. And there's laws in place to vaccinate, spay and neuter all the stray dogs. And people are nice to them but they just don't come inside. So it was really difficult in Turkey to find places to sleep. But otherwise, you know, like 99% of the time, we're just walking and most nights we're camping. So it's really easy. Did you train her? I I, I trained her for sure when we were walking Texas. Um, I used to push her in my carriage at this back basket and I'd push her, you know, most of the time. And then I'd take her out and she would walk as much as she wanted to walk. And I would kind of leash train her a little bit. But by the time we got into Mexico, she was walking the full 24 miles a day. And Mexico was really this pressure that really melded us together as one because we had to navigate these really cramped, chaotic places and we'd have to move as one unit. 
So that's when we really like uh, kind of fuse together in a certain way. Um, would she protect me? No, probably not. <laughs> but at night, people don't know that. <laughs> Even with Savannah by his side, Tom had some sketchy interactions. In the mountains of Turkey, he was interrogated by soldiers who held him at gunpoint. Luckily, they let him go when he showed them his popular Instagram account. It proved that he truly was walking around the world. In Panama, Tom narrowly escaped a mugging when some nearby police intervened. Savannah may not have been the best guard dog, but having her by his side on the road still gave Tom peace of mind. When we come back, Tom shares some intense moments he had during his seven-year walk. Tom Tursich walked more than 25,000 miles to achieve his goal of traveling around the world by foot. He did most of it with his dog, Savannah. On May 21st, 2022, seven years and one month after his initial departure, Tom and Savannah returned to his hometown of Haddon Township, New Jersey. Together, the pair shared a lot of beautiful, awe-inspiring experiences, but there were some tough moments too. No adventure is really an adventure unless something goes wrong. I'm sure that you had many of these moments. Was there ever like a really big OF moment? When we were in the Atacama Desert, the driest desert in the world, and we were really far from anything on a, uh, a median, you know, in the shade and just taking a break midday to get out of the sun. And we'd spent about two hours there and I stood up and Savannah stands up to go and then she sneezes and her nose starts bleeding. And it's not like a normal nosebleed. It's like water coming out. And so pretty quickly, I'm going through my first aid kit and getting her back in the shade. And I'm thinking, like, did we not take a long enough break? And, you know, did she cut something? And so I'm holding her head back and holding the gauze. And But I pretty quickly go through the gauze. So I picked her up and I was able to wave down uh, a Jeep. I was passing by with some young Chileans and they took me to town and tried to find a vet. And then they took me to another town because there was no vet, but the next town had a hotel in it. And then all night she was, you know, sneezing and bleeding and sneezing, and bleeding. And it was really scary. I mean, she looked pale, which is crazy for a dog and she was losing an insane amount of blood. And I ran to the pharmacy real quick and I got a sedative just to slow her heart rate down. And I turned the shower on uh, full heat just to create some humidity because the Atacama is the driest desert in the world. There's no humidity there. So the nosebleed isn't coagulating. Eventually, like the next day, I was able to get a cabbie to take us uh, five hours to the nearest city, to Arica. And we went to the vet and the vet knew immediately what it was. And apparently there's this tick in Southern Peru that just has this infection that is super common there. And Savannah had it and it was latent and I just didn't know, but it dropped her platelets to zero. So that's why it wasn't coagulating. And so they knew what to do right away. And it was just like a week recovery, something like that. And then she was fine. But in the moment it was terrifying. And you know, I only had her for a year and a half at that point. And I was just thinking like, you know, we're just getting started. Like, you know, I can't lose you already. And luckily I didn't. So yeah, thank God. Wow. That's probably really scary. That's like, I mean, that's your baby. Yeah. The, the interesting thing about Savannah too was, you know, like I said, I got her because 
of very kind of self-interested reasons to protect me and so I could get a good night's sleep. And for months, all the way through Mexico, so for probably about three months, I kind of didn't feel anything towards her. I was like, you're tiny, you're not doing your job, you know, and we, we were navigating these very tense, chaotic Mexican cities and it kind of wove us together into one unit. But after we got through Mexico, I remember sitting in a field like near Guatemala and looking at her and just thinking, I love this little bugger. And so my feelings crept up on me very slowly and seeing her go through you know, mountains and, and the desert and everything else, it like pretty quickly evolved beyond even like affection. It's really just like, I am, I have so much admiration for her and she's just such uh, a tough dog. Um, so at this point, and even back then, it was really much more like admiration that I had for her or like, I was just proud of her. Um, of course I love her. She's an amazing dog, but yeah, it's something beyond that at this point. I also heard you got really sick at one point. Yeah, I almost, almost, almost kicked it. Wait, what? Okay, you probably should tell us this story real quick. <laughs> I had a bacteria infection um, after South America. I picked it up somewhere in Argentina or Uruguay, most likely, and it was this really, really slow going thing. Where when I got back to the U.S. and I was doing Savannah's paperwork to get into Europe. Uh, I started getting just these little stomach pains. And then by the time I was in Ireland, I was getting these stomach spasms, you know, once a day. And then by the time I was in Scotland, it was like five times a day where it was 10 out of 10 pain where I'd be on the ground writhing in pain. Like I could not see a blackout. It was so painful. So I took a ferry from North Ireland to Scotland and it was like three miles walk to the ferry and then three miles afterwards and I came to this little grassy knoll and I sat there and I was so tired and I was like I'll just set camp here and then I knew something was really wrong because I never walked less than 15 miles a day and I was ready to call it after six miles and so eventually I just realized like I I'm not getting any better and so I went to London where my cousin is and was like in and out of the hospital for a month they couldn't figure out what it was and it wasn't getting any better flew home was getting all the sorts of tests at home and uh, wasn't getting any better. I developed colitis. I developed like a fungus in my esophagus. I was basically in pain like all day, every day. And I ended up losing 45 pounds and I'm like 165 normally. So, you know, I don't have really have 45 pounds to lose. Luckily, they put me on an antibiotic that just started to work. And then the weight came back very quickly. And then, and then I recovered and, and got back to walk in after about seven months. Tom pushed himself hard to complete his wild idea. While there were moments of joy, there were definitely times when Tom questioned his whole journey. What was the point? What if he just went home? At the end of the day, Tom always remembered Anne-Marie and the lessons he learned from his friend's sudden passing. Life is short, so if you have a wild idea, you have to go for it. When Tom finally arrived back in New Jersey at the end of his trip, it was a cathartic moment. And Marie's parents were waiting for him at the finish line, and there were tears, and of course, there was a big celebration. I talked to Tom just a month after he got back, and things still hadn't quite calmed down. It's only been like a month or less, less so you yeah. haven't really hit hit that like doldrum yet, but I'm just really curious, like... How has it been like 
to be back or has it just been too much of a whirlwind that you haven't really gotten to decompress even? Yeah, I think right now it's been a whirlwind. It's been pretty nonstop since I returned home, but I think I kind of have been so ready to return home for a while that it, it I think it'll be pretty easy uh, in a certain way just because I'm ready for it. And also because I ended the walk, walking from Seattle back home and ended in my own country, when I landed in Seattle, that really felt like that's when, for me, it felt like I was home already. Because finally, it's like when when you're traveling, you always have your guard up just a little bit because you don't know the culture and you don't know the language. Even if you do, again, you don't know the culture. You don't want to offend anyone. And when I landed in Seattle, I really felt like that weight fall off where it's like, oh, like I'm in this culture that I know. I'm home and it started this process of looking back at kind of how much I had changed and sort of all the things I had sacrificed and given up to, you know, make this dream happen. And then also, you know, looking forward as to trying to decipher what did I want, you know, now that it was ending. What was the most surprising thing about this whole adventure? I think probably like the most surprising thing is just how ordinary everywhere is. No matter where you go, you get there and you go, oh, no, this is just people living here (laughs) and the scenery changes. And in your mind, before you get there, you're thinking, oh, man, like Turkey, it's what a wild place. It's going to be crazy. They have a star and crescent on their flag. And then you get there and you go, oh, no, it's just people living like anywhere else. And the scenery changes and there's the call to prayer rather than, you know, church bells. And maybe they have a, a few different customs and the food's a little bit different, but it's Pretty much the same thing. It's people living. Talk to me about what you learned about people. I think most people just want to make a little money and hang out with their family. And, you know, everyone has different personalities. It's not like every person is going to go out of their way to be generous to you. But I think really kind of what I learned about people is just people are small. Life is far more dictated by geography and the system someone is born into than it is their willpower. Uh, I've met people all around the world who are just as competent as I am, more driven than I am, kinder than I am. And, you know, maybe they're in you know the foothills of Turkey and they're a shepherd um, just by circumstance. And not to say that's a bad life, but, you know, uh, like people's lives are dictated by much larger forces than, than, you know, stick to itness. And you see it a lot when you cross borders especially when there's a wealth gap or like a geography difference. Uh, the one that comes to mind most is going from Ecuador into Peru. Uh, I left Ecuador from this little town of Macara, and it's a really um, verdant place. There's a lot of runoff uh, from the mountains, from the Andes, and there's hammocks hanging all over, and there's school kids reading textbooks in the hammocks, and there's hotels, and there's a little landing strip for airplanes in the center of town and there's good restaurants. And then you cross the border into Peru and you're pretty quickly into the desert and people don't have running water. And the difference there is is geography. It's also that Peru is, you know, a weaker state and Lima is pretty far away from the northern parts of the Peruvian desert. So the state just doesn't reach up that far. But really it's, you know, a roll of the dice that you know, your kid on the Peruvian side, you know, bringing your donkey to the well to get water or your kid in Macara in Ecuador, eating ceviche and laying in a hammock, 
So you see that over and over again, and you just realize kind of how small people are and how little influence they have over their own life. And it's really uh, the same thing for me when, when I'm walking. You know, walking is really meditative, and you're constantly picking up memories and um, you're thinking about your influences on your own life and the decisions you made. And you sort of over and over and over again, you're turning over all these things and you realize, you know, so like pretty much all of it, it's just circumstance. And then when I was in the Atacama desert and laid beneath the stars every night and you'd see the Milky Way every night and they, it just like sits on your chest like an elephant and just reminding you that you are nothing. You said walking can be really meditative. You probably had a lot of time to think. What did you learn about yourself? Something about just walking in itself uh, lets your mind kind of run in the background. And after about a year and a half for me, uh, I got to this point where I was in the desert and just thinking I had thought all the thoughts and I just had reached the bottom of myself and sort of had resolved any angst that I thought I had and kind of came to terms with all of it. The first thing I resolved was before beginning the walk, uh, when I was in college, I dated this girl, Leanna, and we dated for about four years and she was great. And, you know, I would have married her probably and started a life with her, but I, instead I chose the walk. And then it was two years or so in between ending things with her and starting the walk. And, you know, two years is a good amount of time. And I thought I had resolved it. And then when I was walking, I would kind of see her everywhere. And I was like, oh, clear. No, you have not resolved this clearly. <laughs> and over those four months of walking, you know, I, it finally afforded me this opportunity to really work through whatever it was that needed to be worked through. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily this trauma you know, and I didn't feel like I was scarred by it, but there was something there that needed to be worked through. And so just like the act of walking, uh, you're able to just kind of pick up a memory, put it down, and then you pick it up two weeks later, look at it at a different angle and put it down. And you do that over and over and over again, and it sort of just loses luster. Or you just understand it and you've seen it from so many angles that you go, oh, okay, that's how it is. And then you set it aside and, and it's kind of forgotten um, or understood at least. And so, yeah, you do that over a year and a half or longer, and you know yourself really, really well. Wait, what happened to Leanna? So, so oh, she's married and has kids. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's life. And that's part of being small as well. It's like when you're young, you think you can control everything in your life, but it's like you can, it's like the, the Sylvia Plath quote, uh, the fig tree. It's like you have to choose a fig. This is so dark, though. Like I, I, I wouldn't say it's dark because you know I live my dream, and if I had stayed with Liana, I would have that probably resentment. I mean, it, towards myself or some bitterness towards myself, maybe towards her eventually. But also, I just wouldn't know myself. I wouldn't know who I was in the same way that I do today. What advice do you have for people who want to pursue a wild idea? I would say be like a bit more reckless with your life. Um, cause you have a very little amount of time here. It's in our nature to play it safe, but I think people kind of handle their life with a little too much care sometimes. And I don't mean like recklessness and just go and just trample the flowers or, you know, and like jump off cliffs. And, you know, I don't mean reckless in that way, but I mean, in like a broad sense, you're going to die. It's already over. The game is over. You lost already. It's over. So for, 
the little bit amount of time you have here. Be a little bit more reckless because you already lost the game, so you may as well have some fun. Now that he's home, Tom is planning on playing a lot of tennis with friends, writing a book about his walk, and doing some public speaking. There may be even a movie in the works. Mostly, Tom's just enjoying having a more permanent home, sleeping in, under sheets, on a bed, and getting to spend time with his loved ones. Tom Tursich, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking to me and pursuing your wild idea that I'm sure will inspire so many more. To learn more about Tom's journey, check out theworldwalk.com or check out his Instagram at theworldwalk. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler and Sylvia Thomas of Puddle Creative. Our senior producer is Chelsea Davis, and our associate producer is Jenny Barber. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we love it when you write a review on this show wherever you're listening to it, when you follow it, and when you rate it. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas. Who is next going to walk around the world? I don't think I am, but if you are, let us know. <laughs>